my name is Brian and I'm an alcoholic. Thank you, Stephen, and thank you for the invitation. It's a it's a, a pleasure to be here with y'all. And Carol's a dear friend of mine, and she seems to plug me in wherever she's at. And I'll tell you, I I couldn't wish for a better partnership and a friend because uh, she's a living example of the program, and that's. One of the uh, benefits I get from sticking around this deal is I get to tie in with people like Carol. I saw Giselle, my friend Giselle on here. David, great to see you too again, brother. Seen you a few times now. You keep popping up on these Hollywood squares uh, on the Zoom meeting deal and this platform. Um, and I'm an alcoholic that um, honestly is, a, a, number one, a satisfied customer, and number two, severely overpaid in this this deal and one of the byproducts of I'd say right living or living the program is that I've got three young children and I have to just set the platform uh, with y'all I, I will apologize now for the interruptions that are bound to come um, I got home from work and it's just me and these three littles and they haven't seen me in a couple days I've been out of town working and um, my twin boys are four and my daughter's five, and um, forgive me for the interruptions. They're really awesome children and well-behaved, and uh, uh, they, I'll get them out of here just as soon as I can when they do inevitably interrupt me, so stay tuned. And I notice Paul's got a little one on his lap, too. Congratulations, brother, and uh, I'm sure you understand what this is about. <laughs> so... Um, I'm, I'm an alcoholic who I absolutely believe in the... Um, biological uh, deal that I'm genetically predisposed to the disease of alcoholism. I'll, I'll tell you all right now that um, other substances uh, were, are part of my story and that, you know, I qualify as an alcoholic because I have the disease of alcoholism. I, I process alcohol different than my wife does, who's one of those average temperate drinkers and you know, any funeral I go to, which I'll be going to one probably next weekend, uh, another family member um, died, and I'll see the family tree of alcoholism, you know, clearly, you know, through the services and the uh, celebration of life, man. Like, I've got that thing in my, in my genealogy. And so... For me, as a um, as a young boy, I'm actually a native of San Francisco, and my dad was a San Francisco cop. Who um, his father was a San Francisco cop, and my dad's brother became a cop. And so we got this lineage in San Francisco of this, you know, Irish Catholic, um, well, cops, priests, and criminals kind of in the family tree. And so they had a branch on the family tree for me. And it wasn't as a cop or a priest. Um, and, and my, my upbringing with, I'm going to give you guys some background that doesn't make me an alcoholic, but contributes kind of to how you can see how I would seek the, uh, the comfort of alcohol, um, to change the way I feel. And I'm an alcoholic who, you know, likes to feel good. But, uh, as a kid, you know, my dad, pretty tough guy, you know, I was used to telling people what to do and they did it, you know, as a sergeant in the police department. And um, I was a kid who challenged him at every turn. And, uh, you know, I was, a, I was um, a challenging kid and challenged his authority. And my dad had this kind of man in the box syndrome teaching thing, you know, um, 
you know, uh, don't cry, suck it up, um, keep your chin up. Um, and I learned violence from my dad. Like, you know, violence was power, power was control, and men were to be in control. So I had this thing going on at a young age where I had a terrible sense of self-esteem, and I felt like I didn't fit. And when I when I tell this part of my story, I, I oftentimes see people nodding their heads because a lot of us come from that background, man, where we have a low sense of self, of self-esteem. And it's programmed from our communities, our parents, our churches, our neighborhoods, our schools. And then as normal people grow up, young people, they reach a certain age and they start throwing away the stuff that doesn't fit and they choose to hold on to the ideas that they want to um, to define themselves. So as a kid, you know, all these messages I got uh, from my parents, a lot of which, you know, came from me getting in trouble. And I heard an awful lot that I was a sinner from my mom. And when she'd sling the names of the saints, you know, I'd, I'd hear Jesus, Mary, and Joseph. I knew I was in trouble. And when she put my middle name in there, Brian, Peter, Fowley, get your, you know, I knew I was in trouble. And that's just kind of the way it was, man. But I had this thing where I oftentimes felt like, there was something missing, like I, I was damaged goods. And I can remember it at a young age, you know, feeling like God had left a component out of me and um, that other kids had that component, that there was something unique about me that was damaged and broken and I didn't fit. And I, I often, you know, found myself exhausted trying to measure up to my father's expectations. And so, um, you know, I... When I took my first drink of alcohol, I, I grew up in a middle-class cop family. Um, we had a living room and a dining room. And when my uh, family would migrate from the living room to the dining room at Christmas or Thanksgiving or any of the holidays, um, they'd leave half-empty cocktails on the living room table and go to the dining room for dinner. And it was my grandfather's highball that I sipped off of at, as a very young age, which changed the way I felt. And it's the first time I can identify having that change, that head change from alcohol, and I felt like I fit. It was like, man, like, you know, I felt loose, like I could talk, like I felt like like I like I fit in the family. And um and it loosened me up. And that feeling of that head change, um, of that lowered inhibitions is something that I chased for many years to come. And I could you know, it's definitely into recovery when I identified these points of, um, I'd say, aha moments when things took a turn. And um, so I sought that feeling thereafter to try to change the way that I felt. And um, as a kid, um, by the time I was 14 years old, I was I was done with what was happening in my household with my dad putting his hands on me and feeling like I was the source of my dad's anger at home. And I left home at 14, and I never went back. And um, and I left a middle-class uh, home in the Bay Area in California and went to the streets at 14 and became a homeless youth, um, went to work in the trades, and was drinking, you know, in the bars. I would cash my check, uh you know, at a very young age, and then it, I would hide out in the corner and start drinking and, you know, I was with these older guys and always spending my money on on Friday. Um, come Monday, I was broke and trying to work to make money again and trying to find a place to get a clean pair of socks. Um, and so when I left home, you know, I took two coping skills to the streets. One was that alcohol 
was a solution. It changed the way that I felt. And the other one was violence. And violence worked for me. It changed the way that I felt. And I learned that at home as well. And um, it wasn't long uh, after I left home that I was having contact with law enforcement. And um, and I was using violence to, to solve problems. And I had uh, gotten into the system and came back out of the system and never went back home, lived with friends of the family and stuff. And kind of did geographic. It was like a geographic out of juvenile hall. And um, and my disease progressed. And like most of us, the damage was going so fast that, you know, I couldn't see it. And um, other people could see it. And they identified it as an anger problem. But really what I had, I think, was a um, self-esteem issue and uh, the uh, alcoholism problem with the condiments of um, other substances. And I, I heard an old-timer in AA tell me we were hoteled up in North Carolina doing this conference, and we were um, sharing a room, and he was telling me about the difference between other substances and alcoholism. And anyway, he described them as condiments to his disease of alcoholism, like you know, you buy the hot dog and you lace it up with mustard and relish and, you know, ketchup if you're a weirdo. And, um, you know, this stuff to make it feel better, you know, um, taste better. And so the condiments were always a part of my story. And uh, and I like that pit, that twist on it that condiments played a part in my, in my story because they were a big part of it. Because I did anything I could to change the way I felt. So by the time I was 21 years old, uh, two months into my 21st year, um, I had been packing pistols for self-defense. And I'll tell you, my violence was an escalating pattern of violence that started with my dad teaching me how to fist fight um, to protect myself. And I never fist fought um, out of self-defense. I was always offensive because I would stutter and stammer and I couldn't articulate. And it was easier to just start throwing to change the way I felt than to continue to be frustrated and not be able to express myself. And then as I started packing knives, it wasn't long before I used a knife. And then the same thing with a pistol. So in 1988, I was a couple months into my 21st year, and I was packing pistols to uh, protect myself because the guys I was running around with um, were dangerous guys and packing pistols. And anyway, I found an opportunity uh, to have my ego insulted, and, um, and I used the pistol to change the way I felt and to solve a problem. And I shot a man named Jim, and I killed him. And it's important that you all understand that I, I'm a murderer. I murdered Jim. I, I shot Jim, and Jim was unarmed, and, and we had a beef. And my best solution, my best thinking at that point in my life was that I was going to show Jim who he was messing with, and it was a completely ego-based decision to pull my pistol and shoot Jim, and I and I murdered him. Okay, um, and when I when I shot Jim, you know, I immediately you know felt like it was power. It was I was after I was chasing power. I was trying to control something I had no business controlling. And what happened was, um, you know, I I felt like the gates of heaven had just slammed shut on me. You know, like I, there was no get back for murder, and I knew I was. I was done. I had crossed a line that there was no way I could come back from. Complete despair and hopelessness immediately. And um, for me, uh, I ran for a few days. I had nowhere to go. 
Police arrested me and I lied immediately. I immediately lied and said, I didn't kill anybody. They said, Brian, we know you killed Jim. We just don't understand what went down. So help us understand, like, what happened, you know? And I told them, man, I didn't kill anybody. And I was a liar. And I had been a liar ever since I took my first drink. Like, I had been a liar with my disease, with alcoholism, drinking, and other substances. I was lying to everybody about me all the time. So it was like natural for me. And I just want to say that the natural progression of lying and my disease, of course, led me to being a, a liar at any chance to try to save my skin or shed myself in a better light than I truly was. And so when I lied to the cops and told them I didn't kill anybody, you know, I ended up in, in jail and um, uh, went through a murder trial. And the, the jury found me guilty of second-degree murder. And in California, you know, we've got different stages of convictions. And the one I was convicted of was that it wasn't premeditated and it was, you know, like um, in that kind of like um, in the act of passion and it was instantaneous. And uh, they sentenced me to 17 years to life in state prison. And I was 21. And I knew that lifers didn't get out of prison in California and I learned that in my county jail and I'll and I'll tell you that when I was arrested I sobered up and I had been on a three-day run and I and I sobered up in my county jail for probably about a week and the fellas back there in maximum security taught me how to make something called pruno prison made wine and I started my drinking again and they taught me how to traffic condiments into the jail and I was using other substances to um, assuage that disease and I don't know that if I didn't have that I wish I could tell you all that like you know murdering Jim was my rock bottom like I mean there's some shame in that that it, it wasn't enough I continued and even in jail and went through a murder trial um, uh, changing the way that I felt and it wasn't my bottom, man. That's the kind of alcoholic that I was. And I don't know that if it was that I wouldn't have killed myself because I watched another man kill himself back there in that maximum security jail because he couldn't cope with who he had become, the shame of being a man who was capable of murder. Um, so for me, at the age of 21 and being sentenced to 17 years to life in prison, I went off to San Quentin to uh, – to die of a convict death and a death that I earned, I was deserving of. There was no, um, in, there was no if, ands, or buts about that. I was guilty and I was responsible. I was not accountable to it, but I knew I was responsible to it. And um, I went into San Quentin to die a convict death. And my disease in prison progressed. And in California prisons, um, I had the opportunity, and what I mean is that I, I did other substances that I had never done before, and um, and I continued to make pruno and participated in the in the prison system um, in just the way I was supposed to. And I found San Quentin to be a calderon of heat, and it was a calderon of ego and resentment, and I fit, I fit in there, and it was a place where violence was not only a social norm but it was an expected norm. And so it was a socially acceptable and expected, and violence was status. 
and um, protection. And so I continued to build this wall of protection, facade of protection through violence and and making myself feel like I was putting on a, um, a armor to protect myself. And I got worse, man. And I'll tell you what, it, going into, into San Quentin, I would have bet good money that I, I was done and I should never, ever possibly come out, never could possibly come out. And I never thought that I would come out. And um, a couple of things happened down the line. And this is where this thing twisted up on me. That I, didn't expect. And, uh, I was about nine and a half years into this life sentence and had gone up to Folsom prison, participated in the prison politics, ended up spending a year in the shoe in California. We got a, a system called the whole, the security housing unit, 1993, they had to put me in there for a year because I wasn't playing well with other murderers and I was hurting other murderers. I was continuing my pattern of violence and progressively getting worse. And um, nine and a half years into my prison term, my sister shows up to the prison visiting room with a brand new baby girl. And man, I'm a guy who wrestled with God. I mean, God didn't have no place for me. God left a component out of me. I was damaged goods. I didn't belong in God's world. And um, somehow the teachings of the church, you know, growing up, and I, I can't say a bad thing about the Catholic Church. I believe it's an incredible institution. And um, But somehow I got twisted with catechism and stuff. And I had this image of my soul being this white, fluffy, cottony thing. And, and I remember hiding from my dad one time. He was going to whoop my ass another time. And um, and we had juniper bushes. I don't know if where y'all are at, y'all got juniper bushes. But where I grew up, we had juniper bushes. And they're prickly and they're pokey and they hurt to hide in. Like, you got to be really trying to hide to hide in the juniper bush. And I was hiding in this hiding hole I had in this juniper bush looking out at the exhaust pipe of the Buick in the driveway and I was thinking you know that my soul was this white fluffy cottony thing that looked like it had been drugged through the exhaust pipe of that Buick and was covered in soot and I remember as a young boy thinking what's the point and that kind of sums it up man like I was a kid who it was like what's the point I'm done and with that mentality you know, you're a sinner, you're a sinner, you're a sinner. Man, you know, I was a sinner. And so when my sister brought this kid up to see me, and I'm holding this baby girl, man, and I did not know babies. You know, I didn't never had a baby, and she's got these fat, chunky forearms and these thighs that are these balls of fat. Looks like she's got a rubber band wrapped around her elbow and her wrist, and she's just this incredible, fat, chunky, beautiful miraculous baby and she smelled good she smelled different than we smell and um and I didn't know what that was you know but um I knew this kid had come from God and I don't know what the miracle is with women having babies women have babies all the time I don't know that there's a miracle in that but I knew that this kid came from God I knew that this innocent bundle would rat God out if she could talk She'd tell me what was on the other side. And I'm holding this kid and I'm looking at her. I'm going, you know, you know, you came from something that's forever, you know. And my sister asked me to be the godfather to this baby. Now, check this out, right? Like, I'm a murderer, man. I'm an alcoholic. I'm a liar. I'm a thief. I'm a cheat. I'm a lifer. I don't know if y'all can imagine the stigma of being a lifer in prison. Like, being a convict is enough. But being a lifer is like a next step of nailing the coffin shut. 
And my sister tells me, you got to be the godfather to this kid. And I'm like, what, you bang your head on the gate coming in here? Like, what could I possibly have to offer this kid? And I told her, I'm a murderer. I'm a lifer. I'm a, I'm a dope fiend. I'm an alcoholic. Are you kidding me? And she said, yeah, Brian, you don't see it, but you're the one. Like, you've got to do this, you know? And I was, like, taken back. And I, I left there, and I was stunned. It was like I took a good shot to the chin, and I hit the yard, and I'm looking around, and I'm like, man, what is this? You know, like, the last thing I figured would be coming my way. And, um, and I looked around the yard at my homeboys. My homeboys were lifers. I didn't care about the short timers. I didn't care about the guys who were going in and out that I'd seen five different times. Um, and lifers in 1997 in California State Prison were getting out of prison in one of three ways. They were getting shot to death by prison guards. They were getting stabbed to death by convicts or they were overdosing on drugs. And, um, and any one of those three was possible for me. It was very clear to me that those were the three. One of those was going to be the legacy for Uncle B. My nieces called me Uncle B. And it was going to be Uncle B got shot to death, Uncle B got stabbed to death, or Uncle B overdosed. And um, and I thought maybe if I did something different, you know, I could do something different. I didn't know what that was. But when I got out of Folsom Prison and was shipped down to a medium security prison, there was a guy that got on the bus with me. And um, his name was Steve. And Steve was doing 27 years of life. And Steve, he was a heavy hitter, man, but Steve had a peace about him. Like he had a calmness about him. And when we got on the bus getting out of Folsom, we were like, man, we survived because dudes were getting killed. Like we were watching our friends get killed, shot and stabbed, and um, they were dying. And me and Steve felt like, you know, we got a parole. We were going to a medium security. We had survived. And when we got on the bus, hey, baby girl, go play, okay? I'll be with you in a little bit. Um, thank you, baby. Go ahead. No, no, don't. Um, and so when we got on that bus, we had this camaraderie. We had this thing that was like we survived something, you know. And when we hit this medium security prison in the Sonora foothills, Steve and I, like, partnered up, man. Like, we weren't tight friends in, in Folsom, but we came out of Folsom, and we are like the Folsom guys who, could, who hit this yard. So we lived in the same cell block. We went to the chow hall together. We ate together. And we hit the weight pile and worked out together every morning. And um so Steve, Steve sees me on the way pile the next morning. He's like, hey, brother, what's up, Fowley? What you got going on, man? Your head ain't in it. Where you at? You know, and, I, and I'm telling him what's going on. And he's like, man, tie in with me Tuesday night. It was like Monday. Sunday was the visit. Monday was the, the yard. Tuesday night, he said, tie in with me at the visiting room Tuesday night, man. I'm going to show you something. And he took me to a meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous. And he took me to a meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous because in California, we got this thing called hospitals and institutions. And these are these crazy, sober alcoholics who go up to these prisons and beat on the gates to get in, tenaciously, like getting canceled at the last minute. You can't come in. There's a lockdown or someone had got a cold. You're not, we're not letting you guys in tonight. These people would show up, man, and give us the room to have a meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous. Steve took me to the meeting, man. Turns out this fool, this guy who had this piece, 27 years of life, and he had this peace, this calm, and I'm going crazy. I'm chasing money. I'm hustling. I'm gambling. You know, I'm in the game, and Steve had this, like, equilibrium about him, and he tasted, you know, he was sober, man. He was sober. So 
Steve became my sponsor. All right. So Steve took me through the 12 steps. And this is 1997, man. And, you know, I hear a lot of things out here about like meeting makers make it or you got to have a sponsor who has a sponsor who has a sponsor. You know, this lineage thing. There's a lot of mythology in AA, right, that don't come out of a big book. But what I had was a big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. I didn't have no mythology, right? I didn't have no lineage. I had Steve. You know what I mean? He was a lifer who was sober. And he was the only sober alcoholic that I knew, man. I didn't get to. So if there's anybody here who's new or fairly new or you're thinking about sponsorship or you're like on the edge or you're like in rooms going, I wonder if we're compatible. I wonder if that's the right person. I wonder if we can talk well or if we got enough in common. Like, hey, BS, man. I call BS on that. Steve was the only sober alcoholic I knew. And he took me through the 12 steps. And I've got a sobriety date of November 9th, 1997 as a direct result of working the 12 steps with Steve. And that's what I had. And it stuck. And it stuck. And it took. And my life got incredibly different and better. And mind you, if it didn't get better, I would have gone right back to what I was doing, man. Okay? So when people say, like, this thing changes, my life got better. And it got worse at first. My first few years of sobriety were tough, man. And I struggled because I had an anger problem. You know, I had this thing where I was using, I was sober and I'm beating up my cellies, man. And I'm like, I can't communicate. Like I got all this stuff. And I'm in a meeting one time and this little H&I lady, her name was Patricia. Patricia was a Native American chick and she had this long black hair and she was short. And she was so short, guys, that her feet, you know, did this on her little chairs in the visiting room, you know, she would do this. And Patricia told me when I first went to the rooms, she's like, Brian, you got to work these 12 steps, man. You're going to you're gonna feel better if you work these 12 steps. I'm telling you, you got to get into these steps right away. And I'm just like, hey, lady, get off of me, man. Like, give me some room. Like, I'm going to get to it, okay? Back up, you know? So anyway, like a year later, I'm working the steps, and I got all this stuff going on, and, and I'm angry. And I was holding the room hostage. And they taught us how to conduct ourselves in a meeting, like not cross-talking and stuff. And we sat in a circle in the vision room. And I was puking on the room, man. I was having a really bad day. And um, and I had the book, and I was saying, you know, y'all said this is going to work and this. And this ain't working. I feel like this. And blah, blah, blah. And the convicts are like, oh, it's the Brian show, man. Yeah, you know, it's like entertainment. Yeah, Brian's going on one, you know. And Patricia sitting across the room from me, and she's laughing. And she laughs, and her hair goes back, and her little feet come up in her chair. And she rolls for And I'm all, man, this lady right here, damn her, you know, and I, and I called her out and I said, yeah, you think that's funny, huh? Yeah. You remember you told me this, this, that I'd feel better. You told me I'd feel better if I worked these steps. And she laughed. Her hair goes back. Her little feet come up and she goes, yeah. And you do feel better. You feel hurt better. You feel confused better. You feel frustration better. And I was like, ah, oh, man. And I had to laugh, right? <laughs> because I'm all serious. I'm all serious and tight and I'm AA and I'm all bound up and I got to do the right thing. And, and I had to laugh because, you know, I'm an idiot, man. Like, yeah, I got feelings and I'm working with feelings. Alcoholics Anonymous cracked me open in a way that had me seeking God to heal myself. Okay. And I became a meditator and mind you, you know, this is like 1998 and, um, and I'm, I, I, I can't, I'm not like in the church house, man, but I know God's existence. Excuse me, Carly. I'll be with you in just a little bit, young man. Okay. Thank you, bud. And, um, 
I sought out a meditation program, and um, what I did was I, I made a commitment to meditate twice a day. I didn't know how to meditate, but I learned how to meditate from a monk, and a monk taught me a technique called centering prayer, and that's where I started from. And I sat twice a day for 20 minutes, and this monk actually who did this, um, Thomas Keating, excuse me, 80, I'll see you in just a little bit, buddy. Um, Thomas Keating, who brought this um, centering prayer into the prison to do a workshop with us because I wrote him, excuse me, just a second. Um, he, he came in and taught us how to do this centering prayer, and what happened was, um, as a result of sitting twice a day and meditating with God, I started getting cracked open, and, I, and he taught me to put my mind on what I wanted to go to. He didn't say you got to make your mind blank. Whoever said that, I mean, you know, we can't do that, man. The nature of the mind is to think, right? So I was taught to move towards love, man. And and I learned about love in prison through med- it was like med- through meditation. I was the the patient, and God was the therapist, man. And if it wasn't for Alcoholics Anonymous, I never would have got to the place where I was willing to sit twice a day on the floor of my cell and put my mind on God. And want to breathe God on every breath, man. And I became that because of Alcoholics Anonymous. So what happened for me was um, I became a meditator. I actually became a yogi and um, spent years meditating four times a day. Some years, um, normal years were, you know, twice a day. And I built community, man. And I'm an alcoholic who built community based on Alcoholics Anonymous and working with men, cleaning house and getting right with each other in our community in prison. Like Steve didn't have me writing letters home to mommy and daddy. Steve had me getting accountable to my yard. And I got accountable to my yard and I got accountable to my crime and I got accountable to the collateral damage that my crime committed. And it was like there's this thing got so wide that I became so vulnerable in a place that vulnerability is not accepted um, because I wanted to live more than I wanted to protect myself. Alcoholics Anonymous did that to me. And what happened was I ended up going to these border parole hearings, um, consideration hearings, and uh, I guess it was, it was probably six or seven of them. Um, they kicked me out of prison in 2011, and what happened was, um, I'm sorry if I'm running late on time, Stephen. Just give me a, a cut off, and I'll shut up. Um, what they did was, they, they, uh, I went, I went through these parole consideration hearings, and I never thought I could possibly like get past my crime, let alone the damage that I did in prison. Uh, I don't know if it makes sense, but I got worse in prison, and I. And I hurt people in prison. It was like I didn't go in there, you know, repentant and right. I went in there and got worse. And then there was a turn. And I had to show a lot of years of the turn of building community, of helping people to do better and of me doing better. And um, the border parole hearings in um, 2009 recognized um, what I had done and the work that I had put in and they said they believed in me and they, they wanted me to go out into the community and continue the work that I had been doing in there. And um, Governor Schwarzenegger had a different idea and he wasn't letting lifers out. And so they reversed that decision the day before I was to get out of prison. And it wasn't personal. It felt personal, but it wasn't personal. But a prison guard that night, the night before, 
came and said, Fowler, you're, you know, you're not getting out of here, man. They took your date. So you got to go back to the board. Go ahead and take off, bud. I can hear you on the door. Please leave, give me a few minutes, okay? It's okay, Carl. I'll be with you in a few. And then um, what happened was I went back to the board, and the Board of Parole Hearings uh, granted my release again, and they said that Schwarzenegger was wrong, you know, and they, they built a record on why he was wrong. And they released me on February 11th of 2011 after 22 years and three months. And I was 21 years old when I went into prison, and I was 43 years old when I came out. And I had 13 years of sobriety uh, in prison. And the first day I was released from prison, I went straight to an AA meeting. There was a few things I did that day. Um, Alcoholics Anonymous was one of them. My intention was to do 90 meetings in 90 days. So if there's anybody in here who's thinking about that 90 and 90 thing, like I showed up with 13 years sober, going to do the 90 and 90, and it was a terrible, terrible meeting. And I didn't know where I was, but I had paroled to a town um, in Fresno, California, and I found probably the worst meeting in Fresno, man. <laughs> it was like, it was rough. It was rough. And I was like, this sucks. It was like the guys I was working with for years in the joint, like we had fellowship, man, and solid recovery. And then it was like, I, I didn't go back for um, for a few days. Hey, can you wait for me, please? You okay? Give me a few more minutes, all right? Thank you. Yeah. No, you don't. You don't have to. I'll be with you in a few. Go ahead and play. Okay? You're in good shape. Sorry, guys. Um, I found a morning meeting uh, at St. Teresa at 6.30 in the, in the morning. And I didn't have a driver's license. I wasn't driving. I was in, gone so long, I wasn't even in the DMV. I had to go get a learner's permit. My stepdaughter had to take me to get the learner's permit. The guy, when I drive up to the DMV, he's like, oh, we must be here for her. I'm like, nah, that's me, you know. He goes, well, this can't be you. You're like, really? Where have you been? I'm like, I've been busy. Anyway, I had to get a learner. So I didn't have a learner's permit, but St. Teresa's walking distance from my house. 6.30 in the morning. I'm an early morning guy. That prison happened. That happens to us in prison. We become, and I'm still hardwired that way. Early morning guy. So I, I start hitting St. Teresa, and it's a solid meeting, man. And then I find out about 12 o'clock meetings, 5.30 meetings, and 7 o'clock. And I'm doing way more than 90 and 90, and these guys just snatched me up, man, in the fellowship. And they taught me how to live. And my idea was I didn't know how to live as a youngster out there, out here in society. And I needed the basis of Alcoholics Anonymous to build my life because it was the foundation that cracked me open to being a man who could participate in our community. And it worked. Y'all got a good citizen back because of Alcoholics Anonymous. And what I'm saying is, like, I'm your neighbor, man, and I show up and you can count on me. And I'm dependable, and I'm going to go the extra mile for y'all. You know what I mean? No matter who it is, I, I'm, I participate in my community. And I learned that in Alcoholics Anonymous. You know, as far as, like, taking a man's life, I got to tell you, I just got to touch on it, that the difference between guilt and shame for me, it's like I was guilty. Go ahead and take off. I can hear you. Please go in the house and give me a few more minutes, okay? Thank you, guys. Being... um a man who took a life, I was guilty of that, and I knew that out the gate. But being the shame of a man who is capable of taking a man's life, of murdering a man, was very difficult and very different from being guilty of it. And I'm a man who had shame my whole life. I was a fraud and ashamed of who I was in God's eyes and where I didn't fit in my life. 
and alcohol was an escape from that or the illusion of an escape. It was like the, the, um, it was like the external solution to an internal dilemma, right? And it didn't, it didn't fix it. It made it worse. I couldn't see it. But getting right with that, like I had to shift my life in a way that holds Jim's death in a place of honor. And I have to show up with that. I'm not a man who believes in living amends. Me staying sober isn't anything other than doing the right thing. But I show up 100% every day of my life in my community. And I've taken steps in prison to show up every day. And today in my community, I show up every day. So what, what I'm saying is I got the bonus round. Like I, I truly got the bonus round through Alcoholics Anonymous. And as a result of the 12 steps, I'm a good citizen and I show up in my community. I'm going to tell you a, a quick story that, you know, I actually, in 1988, was the cause of a 911 call. Hey, boys, please go in the house. Please. Give me a few minutes, guys. Okay? Thank you, boys. When when I went in, as the cause of a 911 call, and the sheriff showed up, the fire department, the paramedics, and they, I traumatized those people. They showed up to a murder scene, to a crime scene with a gunshot victim. And I, at first, didn't, it took years to consider the collateral damage. When I came out of prison, I was at the Christmas Bazaar. I live in a small rural community up here in North Fork, California in the central Sierras. I'm looking at the, the Sierra mountain range right here from my, from my office. And, um, in my rural community here, they have a Christmas Bazaar and, uh, they're selling jams and jellies and these little old ladies with white hair and they're doing this stuff and they're selling, uh, support your local volunteer fire department t-shirts. And, um, anyway, I'm buying t-shirts and this guy steps out from behind the table and he says, Hey man, if you really want to help us out, come work with me. And I was like, what do you, I don't know what you mean, but if you got ball caps, I like ball caps, you know, I'll buy a ball cap. And he goes, no man, I need help up here. Like I'm the fire captain here and I need help. It's just me up here. And I was like, oh, no, I looked at my wife and I was like, they would never let me do that. There's no way. I'm a convicted murderer. I'm a felon. You know, it's a position of trust, of public trust. Anyway, um, she tells me, hey, why don't you let God say no? Why don't you quit, like, trying to write this script, man? And I'm like, and she's not programmed. She's an average temper drinker. You know what I mean? Like, she's got that stuff on the net. And and I'm like, what's wrong with you, man? You are in our program, you know. So anyway, I, I show up and I say, yeah, I'll do it, you know. So I go through the academy, which is four months long. And um, at every turn, I'm waiting for the shoe to drop for HR, the paperwork to say, do you have a fel- have you ever committed a felony? They never asked the question, man. I filled out every piece of paper, passed all the skills tests, passed all my uh, my medical, my um, EMS tests for the uh, emergency responder, first responder. And they gave me a first responder ticket and a firefighter ticket. And I became part of Madera County's volunteer fire department. They call us paid called firefighters. And then they taught me to drive their engines. So now they're giving me pieces of equipment to respond in instead of just being a firefighter. They want me to be an operator. And I mean, hey, man, like, could I even like think that could possibly ever happen? I'm a convicted murderer laying in prison, going to die a convict death. And I get sober, and the opportunities that open up in front of me are beyond my wildest imagination. And you guys got to understand, I became a very good fantasizer in prison. Like, you got, you know what I mean? Like, fantasy is a big part of prison life. And I couldn't even have fantasized this good that I could ever become that. 
And I became that. You know, I respond, I responded in my community to people on their worst day. That's who Alcoholics Anonymous turned me into. That guy who you could count on on your worst day to show up and help you, you know. And thank God that Alcoholics Anonymous creates people like me who get to live the life that God intended us to live. You know, like I was on a path that was not God's path. And so I'm severely overpaid. You know, I got these three children up here. You know, I was never supposed to have babies. You know, I'm up here on three acres looking at Sierra's. I got dogs. I got a pig out there. You know, I got chickens. I got three kids tearing it up. And I'm working 40 hours a week, man, and um, in a career, not a job. I'm an electrician. I'm a union electrician paying into two pensions. And guess where I learned that trade? Yeah, in the joint. I learned how to be an electrician in the joint. And now I'm an, I'm an electrician out here in the IBW, you know, local union 100, doing a career. My baby's got insurance. My house payment gets paid every month. You know, I bought this house, man, on my ticket. And, um, yeah, things got good. As a result of working the 12 steps, as a result of reading the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous, not having mythology or opinions, but the program of Alcoholics Anonymous and the 12 steps. So I got to like circle back to that. And the life that I get to live today is one of honor to participate and a privilege for me to show up as an accountable member of our community. In my opinion, Alcoholics Anonymous is the greatest social movement in history because it takes people like me and turns us into something that God created us to be. And I am not unique. Our rooms are filled with men and women just like me. And what happens is when we get sober, we get accountable and we show up and we are a powerhouse of love and loving God people. So my thing is God on every breath. And um, I learned that in AA, to breathe God on every breath. And when I do that, I do the next right thing. So um, thanks, you guys, for having me. Sorry I um, uh, probably ran a little bit long here. Um, pleasure to be with you all. My name is Brian, and I'm a satisfied customer of Alcoholics Anonymous. Thank you, Stephen.